0: An investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Craig Willingham. He is the Deputy Director of the City University of New York Urban Food Policy Institute. He came to the Institute from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Center for Health Equity, where he developed and implemented strategies to make it easier for consumers to buy healthier products in food retail venues throughout New York City. He graduated with an MPH, or a Master's in Public Health Nutrition, from the CUNY, or City University of New York, School of Public Health. And he has a diverse professional background, including business management, secondary school education, regional agriculture, and technical training. I recently heard him present at a food system summit that was hosted by the Kim Richman Group, a legal firm in New York City working on social justice issues. So welcome, Mr. Willingham. It's great to have you with me.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I want you to paint a picture for our listeners about what it's like in New York City right now, specifically in Harlem, densely populated area in the heart of dealing with COVID-19. Tell me what the atmosphere is like there.
1: Well, I can't speak specifically to Harlem. While our offices are in Harlem, I, I live in Brooklyn, But the experience isn't so different here in northern Brooklyn as it is in Harlem and all over the city, for that matter. The way in which people are interacting with the urban food system is very different now than it is during a normal period. There's a lot more attention to food, where you're getting it from, who's producing it, how much of it's going to be available. And that's meant that when people think about shopping, whether that be for prepared meals or for grocery items, they're really thinking in terms of planning you know, what's the place that's going to have what I need and how should I tailor what I normally buy and by extension my diet in order to make sure that our cupboards are full. And I would say that the impact that's had on the city is to make people a little bit more cautious when it comes to what they buy and also a bit more understanding about what their fellow citizen is going through during this time, particularly in the context of food and in the fallout from COVID-19 and all the massive jobs that have been lost, the fact that this issue of food insecurity has really been put on the front burner of, of not only city government, but we see it all around us. with Not only our relatives and, and neighbors being out of work, but so many people that are interviewed on television and newspaper, et cetera, that it's really a sort of a front burner story that in a way that it hasn't been historically.
0: Hmm, And I love that the Institute looks at social justice issues and looks at not only the people who are needing food on a daily basis, but indeed looking at people who are producing it and serving it and looking at those many inequities. Years ago, I had been in New York City and touring the green markets there. And it was my understanding at the time that New York City food policy made it so that if you had, say, a bakery and you were serving baked products or selling baked products through their green markets, that a certain percentage of the flour had to be purchased within New York State to help support the local agricultural economy. Is that still true to your understanding?
1: Well, it's not any piece of regulation or legislation that mandates that that's a part of the rules for participating in the green market, and for those who are familiar with the green market system versus a, a regular farmer's market, green market is a system that's exclusive to New York City and really focuses on making sure that the producers who are represented in the market are actually selling the products that they grow, or at worst, they're selling products of their neighbor or products that are in the region. Many farmer's markets around the country have this phenomenon where you have the producers who are represented at the farmer's market are actually just buying the products from the same wholesale producers that the supermarket does. And New York City really has been pretty adamant about making sure that in the green market system that what you see is representative of what you get and not the sort of farm washing. As far as products that are prepared like cakes, pies, breads, etc., there are some stipulations about what amount of ingredients need to be sourced from New York vendors. I'm not familiar with what the actual threshold is, but again, that sort of guideline, that sort of rule is something that's a part of what PROMYC, the organization that runs the green market, the way in which they implement those markets is based on that local sourcing.
0: Yeah, it's really smart to have that kind of relationship. And I really appreciate the word farm washing. We see that all the time. And in markets that do have good market policies, and make it mandatory for people to not be going to these centralized distribution centers. And they are indeed selling the food that they are producing. It really does make a totally different food environment for the buyer. And it supports regional agriculture. So it's good. So I'm glad to know that. One of the things that you spoke about in some of the work that you've done, I did a little research about the Institute before our interview, and then I'm also borrowing from your presentation at the Food Systems Summit But I'm really concerned about populations that were dealing with food insecurity before COVID-19, and then after the pandemic or during the pandemic, it's still going on. And namely, those would be immigrant populations that fear using or are reluctant to access food assistance programs. What are you seeing in New York City around that? And how are you intervening to help get food into the mouths of everyone?
1: Well, the climate created under the Trump administration has really seen a phenomenon where immigrants in New York and other cities have pulled back from both charitable and public services. That climate of fear really just essentially had the effect of making people believe that there's no safe option for them. COVID-19 has changed that to a large degree because the dire need that's there and both economic hardship that's been put on so many people by the the closures of various businesses, et cetera, really has meant that many have had no choice. So what the city has done is essentially formatted the way in which they deliver charitable meals. And by extension, the organizations, the nonprofit organizations that do the same thing, they've made it as no frills as possible. There's not any sort of feature of those distribution mechanisms that would, ideally make someone not feel that they were welcome, that they were safe, etc. And there's very, very little in the form of documentation that people who are receiving those sorts of services have to do. There's likely people who are still afraid. And again, I don't think that there's anything that could change that in the wake of everything that's happened and all the rhetoric of the last few years. I think that to get that trust back will take a long amount of time and no amount of talking and promises will do that. But that said, the, the urgent need has, I think, changed many people's perspective about whether they'd be willing to use those charitable food services or not.
0: Yeah, it's such a shame to see people who are fearful. And certainly, New York City has a large population of immigrants. I live in the Midwest, and we see immigrant populations even here, say, that work at meat processing plants that have been reluctant to use the health care system prior to COVID 19. And of course, during the Trump administration, this heightened fear of being somehow persecuted for using basic services and being hungry. So it's all over. Even though you are based in New York City, these problems reach out throughout our entire country. You're focused specifically on food policy and just food policy. By that, I mean justice within the food system. And I know that you have looked at different metrics that Measure food justice in a food system. And I wonder if you could talk about that. How did you come up with this system? What data are you looking at? So, if we were all going to review our own food systems, our own regional food policies, what kinds of things should we be honing in on?
1: That's a great question. You know, we began looking at the various metrics that represent progress or stasis in the food system we really had to be guided by what was available. Here in New York City, we have a document that's released every year called the uh, Food Metrics Report. And it really just is more of a collection of numbers, you know, X number of meals served, X number of pounds of produce distributed, etc. But it doesn't focus on outcomes, only outputs. And that makes it very difficult to figure out whether what was intended to be done by all these various programs and the dollars being spent on food by the city, whether they were actually having an impact. And our attempt at figuring out whether there is an impact or not really came from trying to take what was available. And for the report that we did, the report was titled Food Policy in New York City Since 2008, Lessons for the Next Decade. We did a combination of looking at reports, briefs, and other sort of similar documents, primarily focusing on New York City, but extending to New York State as well. And looking at those reports that were issued over the previous 10 years, we identified something like 120 different recommendations that were made in those reports. Among those recommendations, what we did was separate them into a handful of categories to try to organize them. And those categories were Improved Nutritional Well-Being, policies and recommendations that promote food security, policies and recommendations that focus on creating food systems that support economic and community justice and community development, policies that ensure environmental sustainability within the food system, policies and recommendations that support food workers, and policies and recommendations that strengthen food governance and food democracy. And what we found was the vast majority of these recommendations recommended in these reports really focused on nutritional well-being and creating a food system that supports economic and community development and we thought this is a good way to understand where the energy has been over the last ten years around food policy in New York City and the surrounding area and also to figure out where there can be improvement and to sort of get at that question we asked why has so much of the energy been around nutritional well-being and economic development And in many ways it's very it's instinctually simple Nutrition is a very tangible thing that so many people can connect with and that really plays well politically with respect to developing policies. The same thing for economic development. You're talking about jobs. You're talking about putting money in people's pockets. When it comes to things like food insecurity, environmental sustainability, supporting food workers, and food democracy, those are a little bit more nuanced, and and they come with a lot more complicated and thorny questions. And it made sense that not as much progress and not as many recommendations have been made in those areas. So with this first report looking at the past few years, we really wanted to set that precedent, understand the categories that recommendations have been made in and then we identified scenarios where actual pieces of regulation or legislation or other policy mechanisms were done within those categories. And putting all that together, we were able to make an analysis that showed what progress has been made on food policy in New York City over the previous 10 years.
0: Well, it's a great report, and I actually would love to link to it for this interview so that people can just start thinking about some of these policy goals when they go forth with their own food policy councils, for example. No matter where you live, all of these issues are so critical. And they're so, you know, it's easy to list them off, but I'm watching from afar, thinking, I know what it's like to decide on those six things. It's really hard to bring groups together. There's a lot of planning that goes into agreeing on what six policy measures you're going to be looking at. So I think this is a great start. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Craig Willingham. He is the Deputy Director of the City University of New York Urban Food Policy Institute And he came to the Institute from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Center for Health Equity, where he developed and implemented strategies to make it easier for consumers to buy healthier products in food retail venues throughout New York City. And that's exactly where I want to dive into right now, food retail venues. We've all heard the term food desert. I know that there's been some debate about whether or not that's really a good word for it. But I think most of us are familiar with the term and what it basically describes is you're in a neighborhood and it doesn't matter whether you're rural or urban. I think we've all been in a place where there wasn't any quote unquote good food to be had. Lots of processed food is ubiquitous in our environment. It's just the way it is by design, really. And I think it's so important for us to make headway there Because when we think about public health, at least on the grant projects I've worked on, our goal is to always make the healthy choice the easy choice. And that's not so easy. So tell me about some of your work in that area and some of the changes that you've been able to implement.
1: Well, you know, when people use the term food desert, what they're really referring to is a grocery store gap. Any neighborhood that's going to have a grocery store, there's going to be options for you to purchase healthy food in. If that grocery store isn't there, then there's going to be less opportunity, even though you have pockets. I mean, for example, while I was working at the Department of Health, I worked on a program called Shop Healthy NYC, which had a three-pronged approach that worked with distributors and manufacturers, retailers of corner stores, bodegas and supermarkets, and community groups to develop a way of engaging those three constituencies in a way that made it easier for the distributors and manufacturers to place their healthier products in stores, made it easier for the store owners to market and promote those products in their stores, and then use the energy of community groups to catalyze their, to support those stores that are trying to make healthier products more accessible. And one thing that we would see is that, for example, with a Subway restaurant, we would see a Subway restaurant right next to a corner store. That Subway restaurant would be able to access in their planogram, which is essentially the plan that the distributor uses when they drop off products at a store, it's the plan that they use to display the products, they would have access to baked and low-fat potato chips. But that same planogram wouldn't be offered to the corner store next door because there's a health halo around, to some degree, around Subway. And it wasn't the fact that the store couldn't access them. That distributor just would not offer that to the store. And a lot of what our work in that program was doing was getting the store owners engaged so that they would ask the distributors or even demand that they have access to those products and use the process of stocking those products, using the marketing materials that we provided, and support from community groups to try to be successful in placing healthier products in their stores. And a lot of that work and similar work that's being done around the country really is about setting the precedent, setting the precedent of healthier products, particularly in venues that people would normally associate with healthier products, and making sure that these sorts of issues are constantly at the top of mind as opposed to being a sort of secondary or side thing when it comes to the programmatic work that departments of health, community groups, and others are doing to try to make their retail environment healthier.
0: Mm -hmm. I love the term grocery store gap because that's exactly what it is. And I know that there are many individuals who really don't like the term food desert. What I see is even if there's a supermarket, that supermarket or grocery store may not have locally produced food. You know, it's still coming from that industrial system. And so, yes, you may have produce, but how much of it is local? What is the quality of that produce? So I almost feel like it's not only a grocery store gap, but it's also any more a farmer's market gap. And how do we get more of those green markets or farmers markets embedded in more communities? I think that we've seen a huge increase over the last, say, decade. But how do we get that even more entrenched in more communities?
1: Well, I think it's the solution to that problem more broadly is twofold. Looking at opportunities to increase farmers markets, but also looking for opportunities to get more local produce into existing supermarkets. I mentioned Y C earlier. They're the organization that runs the green market system here in New York. But in the last decade, they've started a distribution arm as well called Green Market Co. that takes those same vendors who are doing retail in the green market system and provides them with support to be able to get their products into other retail outlets, supermarkets and corner stores, but primarily supermarkets. And they've done a fantastic job of building out that operation. They actually got I believe it was $20 million from New York State uh, a few years back to build a new distribution hub in the Bronx that's going to be coming online very soon.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. I think that the work that your institute is doing and the pieces of policies that are being highlighted through your institute can be national models. So I'm really glad to know that. On yesterday's Food Summit, there was discussion about highly processed food, and It's shelf-stable, as you mentioned. And that is always the argument I hear when there's any discussion about bringing more of these fresher foods to different markets. It's got a shelf life. It's not going to sit on the shelf or in a vending machine for months as, say, a Twinkie might. And so how have you overcome that barrier of the greater perishability of fresh foods that we do want to see in more markets, but there's that challenge of shelf life?
1: Well, quite frankly, we haven't overcome that barrier yet. I mean, that's one that really is baked into consumers' perceptions and expectations going back almost 50 years. We've moved our food system and our food economy over to a convenience model as opposed to a public health, nutrition, classical notion of, preparing food model, and I don't think that that will be reversed in an easy way. I think it will take efforts on a number of different fronts, not just nutrition education, but also from the perspective of retailers, public health professionals, et cetera, and government officials and policymakers, but I think, and this is one of the sort of interesting things about the times that we're in, COVID-19 has really had an enormous impact on getting more people to cook, and I think that being exposed to regular cooking many people may have demystified the process and made it seem, this is my hope, made it seem a lot less daunting and a lot less time-consuming. However, there is the reality that there are people who don't have time to cook every night and that these convenience foods, shelf-stable foods, ultra-processed foods are a part of their lives and a part of what makes life easier for them. And I don't know that there's a clear way to address this. There's, possibly opportunities with the younger generation to try to take a more integrated approach into introducing them to different kinds of foods, whether that be just through straight nutrition education or connecting with them with urban agricultural programs to show where food comes from. But I don't think that we're there yet. It's something that we're interested in as an institute. Other researchers around the country and around the world are interested in and public health professionals and on and on and on. And we're all working towards that point. But what the it is going to be to crack that code I don't think it's been made clear yet.
0: Yeah, I think that over time, cooking has become, it's seen as drudgery or it's seen as, you know, not this high-tech skill. I wish that we looked at cooking more as a very basic healthcare care need, just like washing our hands. We have to be able to know how to feed ourselves. And somehow with the introduction of all of these processed foods, It's been okay for us to just put cooking on the back burner, so to speak, and I like your idea of helping people learn, especially as children, how important it is to cook for ourselves, and then the urban gardens and school gardens helping introduce children to the beauty and magic of food, and it's science and math, too. So elevating cooking to have a more prestigious place in our lives is, I think, in my opinion, one of the ways that we can have a healthier world moving forward. I wanted to ask you in that same vein about urban gardens and what you're seeing in New York City. I know I've in my travels to New York City, I've seen more gardens popping up. I know there are issues with regard to soil quality and lead contamination. Um, with COVID-19, there's been discussion about having this term immunity gardens where people are growing their own greens reinforcing their own health, strengthening their immune system. I think it's a great goal. What are you seeing where you are?
1: New York has a long tradition of urban agriculture going back since the founding of the city. And what we've seen with urban agriculture during COVID-19 is that it's continued to endure. The restrictions related to social distancing and wearing masks, etc., has changed the way that people interact with their garden space and with one another, but it's continued to move forward. More broadly, what I would like to say about urban agriculture is that New York City, to my mind, has been one of the most innovative places for urban agriculture. In the last five years, the city has embarked on a really amazing project where they've established urban farms on five public housing sites. This is called the Farms at NYCHA, which is the New York City Housing Authority. And we we were the evaluators for that project. And it's really been an amazing experience seeing how those farms have transformed people's perceptions of their neighborhoods, their perceptions of what sort of food should be available in their neighborhoods, and just the sort of visceral interaction with the farms. So urban agriculture plays an important role in the city. And from what we've seen in recent times, it's going to increasingly play a role.
0: Yeah. Have you looked at crime reduction associated with those urban gardens?
1: Yes, well, perceptions of crime reduction. We haven't correlated actual crime statistics with urban gardens, but we've looked at perceptions. And and what our findings show is that people do feel safer. They feel that it has a calming effect and that it's a sort of feature that has the potential to transform the way people think about and behave in the neighborhood. But you know, we haven't correlated d- directly with crime statistics now.
0: Mm, it's so interesting. You know, My mother grew up in the city. And I remember that she told me that before television, people would get outside and they'd sit on the stoop and they'd have a sense of community. And once television came on the scene, people stayed inside their homes and they became more fearful. You watch the news and you become afraid. And so the way I look at it is that these urban gardens create a stronger sense of community. And once you know your neighbor, then that reduces the sense of fear. You know, we fear the unknown. But when you get to know people, there's more chance of saying, well, you may not look like me, but it seems that we share a lot of the same values.
1: Mm, Absolutely, yes. I mean, again, gardens, urban farms, and urban agriculture more generally can have a really fantastic effect on cities. And the benefits can be come from various varieties of impacts, from social cohesion to health and nutrition, on and on and on.
0: Yeah. And those are values we can all gather around and say, yeah, we want more of that. We just have a couple of minutes left. So I just wanted to ask you if there was anything that you wanted to make sure our listeners knew that I may have neglected to ask.
1: Well, I think one of the things I'd like to say is that when we, you know, we're the CUNY Urban Food Policy Institute, but one of the reasons why we incorporate urban in our name is because the vast majority of people on the planet now live in cities, and cities are so intimately linked to other parts of the globe, particularly the food-growing regions, because without those areas, cities can't thrive. So we really see urban food policy as a way to talk about food policy more broadly, And we think that the importance of urban areas in the food system will only increase in the coming decades. And so understanding how the food system impacts urban environments, I think, will be one of the more important things to monitor in the the decades to come.
0: That sounds great. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn in Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Craig Willingham. He is the Deputy Director of the City University of New York Urban Food Policy Institute. We will provide a link for our listeners. It's simply cunyurbanfoodpolicy.org, but I will have a link to that as well as to the excellent food policy paper that you were a co-author with So thank you again, Mr. Willingham. I really appreciate your time.
1: No problem. Thank you.